this is Dina Weiss for Hadar, on Parashat Amor, on bows and arrows. Parashat Amor contains the instruction to count seven weeks, from the day after Pesach to Shavuot, Tzvirat HaOmer. Over the centuries, this period has been associated with a number of significant moments in Jewish history, leading to the accretion of many customs and practices unrelated to the biblical counting. Though most of these practices, like not getting married or getting one's hair cut, have to do with mourning, there is a strange interruption or cessation of the mourning that occurs on the 33rd day of the count, Lag Ba'omer. In addition to the pausing of these mournful practices, there are a number of interesting customs associated with the day of Lag Ba'omer itself. One in particular, though waning in popularity, is worth noting the custom for children to play with bows and arrows on this day. What is the connection between this strange and somewhat violent custom and Lag Bomer? And what might it teach us about the entire period of counting the Omer itself? One explanation for the celebratory quality of Lag Bomer is that it marks the yurt site of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the Talmudic sage, as well as the pseudepigraphic author and primary character of the Zohar. Accordingly, there are those who tie his passing to the custom of shooting bows and arrows. The Bnei Yisachar explains, it is a custom of Israel that school-age children shoot with a bow, keshet, on this day. And I have heard from his honor, my teacher, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Rimnav, that the reason is that during the days of Rabbi Shema Bar Yochai, the rainbow, keshet, was not seen in the sky. So on the day of his ascent to heaven, we display this sign. In the wake of the great flood in Parshat Noach, God established a sign that he would no longer seek to entirely destroy humanity. The appearance of the rainbow, the keshet, after a heavy rain, is a reminder to God that he promised not to harm us. It is a sign to us that God could have brought a second great flood, and he didn't. However, when Rosh Bar Yochai was alive, his presence was enough to prevent God from even considering destroying the world. Therefore, no sign of the rainbow was necessary, and consequently it did not appear. According to the Bnei Saskar, the archery bows of the children appear at the same time that the bow in heaven, the rainbow, reappears upon the death of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. However, this explanation raises its own questions. There have been many righteous people over the course of Jewish history, and rabbinic literature has a robust vocabulary and store of images that it uses to speak of their righteousness. Why is the bow and arrow associated with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in specific? Why does his presence, more so than other righteous people, trigger the absence of the bow? And of course, if the bow is a bad thing, a negative sign, and we do not want God to be reminded with it, then shouldn't the children be avoiding bows rather than displaying them? Perhaps Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is associated with the absence of a heavenly bow not only on account of his righteousness, but as a reflection of his personality and his approach to life. Maybe the bow and arrow is not merely rendered superfluous by him, 
but is incompatible with him in some way. There are two rabbinic passages that demonstrate Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's total commitment to learning Torah and his all-or-nothing personality. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai Omer, Ein ladavar sof, kotzer b'shat katzer, charesh b'shat charesh, dash b'shat sharav, zoreh b'shat haruach, ematai adam lomed Torah. Ela kach Yisrael osim ritono shal makom, melachtan nasil ayodei achirim, shenemar v'amdu zarim v'ru tonechem. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, There is no end to this. If a person reaps in the time of reaping, plows in the time of plowing, threshes in the time of heat, winnows in the time of wind, when will a person study Torah? Rather, when Israel acts according to God's will, their work will be done by others. As it says, the foreigners will stand in and herd your flocks. And when Israel does not act according to God's will, they will do their own work. And not only that, but the work of others will be done by them. As it says, and you shall serve your enemies. In this passage, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai demonstrates his clear disdain for the normal way that people go about making a living. Growing and harvesting crops is too time-consuming an unabidable distraction from the Torah learning, which should be a person's sole pursuit. Under persecution by the Romans, Rabbi Shimon does get the opportunity to live the life of total Torah learning that he advocates for during his years hiding from his pursuers in a cave. Azlu tashu b'marata, itrachash nisa, ivri lehu charuva ve'ena demaya, v'avu mishachu minayhu, v'avu yatvi ad tzavarayhu b'chala. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Rabbi Lezer went and hid in a cave. A miracle took place and a carob tree and a spring of water were created for them. They would take off their clothes and sit buried up to their necks in sand, learning for the entire day. At the time of prayer, they would get dressed and pray covered up and then they would take off their clothes so that they would not wear out. They sat in the cave for 12 years. Ata Eliyahu vekam apitcha demarata, until Eliyahu came and stood at the entrance to the cave. He said, Man lo Who will notify Bar Yochai that the Caesar has died and his decree is nullified? Nafku chazu inchi karvi vezare. Amar, manichin chai olam v'oskin they went out and saw people who were plowing and planting. He said, They are abandoning eternal life and engaging in temporal life. Every place where they set, their eyes was immediately burned. A heavenly echo emerged and said to them, did you come to destroy my world? Go back into your cave. These two anecdotes are illustrative of Rabbi Shimon's approach. According to him, service to God through the study of Torah must be constant and relentless. Burying one's own body in sand in order to study is praiseworthy. But burying a seed in the ground to grow food is a waste of time. A focus on the temporary and fleeting over what truly matters. This is the opposite of a bow mentality. When one shoots with a bow, 
as opposed to when one uses a more direct hand-to-hand -hand weapon or tool, the act is divided into two very discrete moments. First, one pulls the bow close to one's body, a moment of tension in the bow and in the human being, a moment of focus and presence. Then, one releases the bow. While the arrow flies to its target, the bow is slack, and the human needs to allow the arrow to fly unimpeded. An arrow does not fly unless it is left alone. The bow's refractory period is critical to the arrow's success. A bow mentality allows for periods of focused intensity and also for moments of rest and rejuvenation. Rabbi Shema Bar Yochai believes that there is no time for rest, no purpose to it. He does not see a way to divide one's energies between different projects that support and enable one another. Rabbi Shema Bar Yochai's approach is to hammer and hammer, stab and stab continuously. He is not equipped to release. Though Rabbi Shema Bar Yochai does not have a bow mindset, he does seem to have arrows, the disapproving fire that he sends forth from his eyes. The other major Talmudic figure associated with the time of Sfirata Omer is Rabbi Akiva. Traditionally, this time commemorates the loss of his students through the military revolt of Bar Kokhba and the spiritual malady of mutual disrespect. This can add another layer to understanding the imagery of the arrow in specific and can help us understand why it is that school children do the shooting according to this custom. Tehillim refers to young men as arrows. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the young men. And Rashi explains that these young men are actually the students of one's youth. So are the sons of youth, the students that a person establishes in his youth. The language that Rashi uses for these students is almost an exact quotation from Rabbi Akiva himself. Rabbi Akiva Omer, Rabbi Akiva said, in the morning you should plant your planting. If you establish students in your youth, do not refrain from establishing them in your old age. A story about Rabbi Akiva, who had 300 students of his youth and they all died. And were it not for the seven students he established in his old age, he would not have a single student called by his name. Students have the important quality of an arrow. In their youth, they are saturated with the influences of parents, teachers, and peers. And then they need to be released to find their own targets, to accomplish what they need to. A child who is treated like an arrow will grow up to be a successful adult. But a child who is never released and never freed cannot reach their potential. Students are only effective once they are deployed. But there is a risk of releasing them from the sphere of influence and allowing them to fly off on their own. Perhaps the students play with the bows and arrows to remind the teachers and parents that children are indeed arrows and they need to be released at some point from the bow. This is in line with the perspective of Rabbi Kolonimus Kaman Shapiro, the Piazetsna Rebbe, author of the Chovara Tamidim. In his introduction to the parents and teachers, he writes that the best way for students to learn 
is to harness their desire for independence, to give them a sense of responsibility to themselves. it isn't sufficient to teach a child that they listen to the teacher, and that's it. For this alone will not be effective. For in the end, he will look at his rabbi as his adversary, and like a foreign tyrant. The fundamental approach is to insert this mindset into his heart, that he should know that he, the child himself, is the real teacher. He himself is not just a small kid, but a planting of God in the vineyard of Israel. And God has entrusted him with the obligation to raise and direct this planting himself into a great tree, a tree of life, and to make himself into a servant of God, righteous and great in Torah. In some ways, it's much harder to use a bow and arrow because it is a method that entails some loss of control. An arrow can be intercepted by even a slight wind. The archer needs to have a large amount of faith and a willingness to wait as the arrow travels towards its target. Students are like arrows because you must release them and you must have faith in them. Just as the Chovara Tamidim teaches that the students have to be their own teachers and be given some free reign, the teachers also have to learn from the bow and arrow. We need to allow ourselves to engage in moments of intense focus and then give ourselves time to absorb and grow. We need to relax and get a little bit of distance in order to hit the target. The mindset of Rabbi Shem is that study is relentless. The mindset of the bow is that learning is episodic. The intensity needs to wax and wane. This bow mindset is also reflected in the combination of Sirat HaOmer, the holiday of Shavuot, referred to in the Torah as Atzeret. The biblical calendar of agriculturally based religious holidays divides the year neatly into two halves. On the 15th of Elul, we celebrate the fall harvest by Sukkot, and six months later, the spring harvest coincides with our celebration of Pesach. Each of these festivals lasts for seven days, and then it's followed by an extra gathering, an Atzeret, at its conclusion. However, the Atzeret celebrations of Sukkot and Pesach differ in their timing. The concluding festival of Sukkot, now called Shemini Atzeret, happens immediately at the conclusion of the holiday giving Sukkot the feeling of being an eight-day celebration, whereas the Atzeret of Pesach arrives a full seven weeks later with the arrival of Shavuot. Rashi explains that the reason for Shemini Atzeret is that God has gotten used to our company. The closeness created during the duration of Sukkot, and he does not want to allow us to leave. The Atzeret that follows Sukkot reflects a separation anxiety, wanting to be on the high of the holiday for as long as we can, and a fear of letting it go. During Elul, we recite the Psalm 27, begging God to let us dwell in his house forever. Shavuot, on the other hand, comes as a target, and a tzeret that we can return to after being away from God for seven weeks. It is a boomerang, a bow and arrow. On Shavuot, we receive the Torah, the tools that we need to live independently, to leave the nest. These guidelines must come to us after the experience of self-reliance that Sfirat Omer is designed to reflect. 
We can't live in a state of constant high tension, can't always live in a state of high stress. And we also can't live in a time of constant closeness, kavanah, and spiritual highs. Ours is not the world of Rabbi Shema Bar Yochai. We need breaks in order to live normally, happily, and productively. Drawing strength from the intense moments to launch us, flying us to our goals. Pulling back to launch forward. Perhaps this is why Sfrat Omer is organized around weeks, Shabbatot, as its defining structure. A series of moments of pause, which are crucial for us to reach even higher. Wishing you a Shabbat that counts. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to our weekly Debray Torah. To see more from our archive, please visit hadar.org slash Torah.